Ночевай шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибить их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. In each episode, we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. Given the state of U.S.-Russia relations over the last decade, it's hard to recall, even imagine, a time when the two countries actually cooperated. One of those moments was in 1921. The new Soviet government faced one of the worst famines in history, and aid came from an unlikely place headed by an even more unlikely figure, the American Relief Administration, headed by Herbert Hoover. For two years, the ARA fed more than 10 million men, women, and children across Soviet Russia. It was the largest humanitarian operation in history, and it prevented the loss of countless lives, mass social unrest, and arguably, the collapse of the young communist state. So what is the story of this mostly forgotten moment in U.S.-Russia relations? Here's Douglas Smith to talk about the Russia job. So you have this new book, The Russian Job, the forgotten story of how America saved the Soviet Union from ruin. And, you know, you, you have a pretty eclectic research and writing, um, you know, I don't know what to say, uh, CV or books. And you've written books about the Russian nobility and the aftermath of the Russian Revolution. And you have this really amazing comprehensive biography of Grigory Rasputin. So what what inspired you to write this book about the American famine relief effort in the early Soviet period? Well, first of all, thanks for having me back on, Sean. It's, it's nice to be with you again. Um, you know, there are some of us in the... Uh, historical academic community that sort of have these areas of interest that can hold them for decades or maybe even whole career. I, I, I lack that attention span. I sort of bounce around and I ended up picking up topics for books based really often on like really very sort of personal kind of aspects. Um, my first book was on Freemasonry uh, in Russia in the 18th century. And I really only landed on that because I was studying as an undergraduate in Vienna, Austria, and in one of my German lit courses, we studied the libretto for The Magic Flute, written by Schikaneder, and that got me fascinated with Freemasonry, and I went to the opera, Mozart's opera in Vienna, and so that led to that book. Uh, I wrote a book on the uh, famous Russian surf diva Praskovia Kavalyova, who performed as the Pearl. Uh, and belonged to, you know, the fabulously wealthy Charmetia family. And she and her master, you know, had this love affair, um, you know, in quotes, how much was it, uh, you know, equal? That's a question I try to explore in the book. But this idea of love beyond uh, taboo, beyond uh, social acceptability was something 
that fascinated me, I think because I was then uh, engaged to my uh, wife of now almost 30 years, Stephanie, who's African-American. And, you know, we were, we were exploring at the time when we were engaged, you know, this whole notion of, of uh, love and marriage beyond what was considered socially acceptable. And so that kind of, I think, sparked my interest in that story. So I end up writing about these books, I feel like, because they tap into something that's in me personally. Um, but this one about the famine grew out of uh, the book I wrote about the, the sort of the destruction of the Russian uh, nobility after 1917, former people, uh, where I was doing research uh, on what was going on in Russia in the early 1920s with these former nobles and aristocrats. And I was reading the letters and diaries of these young women from these once prominent families who had lost everything, who got jobs working for the Americans when they came to Moscow in the early 1920s and 1921 to start working uh, famine relief. And I really didn't know much about the story, but reading the letters of these women got me excited about it. And I kind of filed it away. I have a, a literally a manila folder in my office, you know, future book ideas. And I, whenever I come across something, I write it down and I throw it in there. And actually, I, I was debating when I came back to it to try to write this as a novel. And uh, I thought it would be a great theme for historical fiction. And I had actually mapped out the sort of the plot lines. Uh, I had all the major characters that I wanted to include. But then the more I read about the famine and the experiences of Russians in the famine, they were so horrible, they were so gruesome, that I knew that if I did it as fiction, people would think that I was exaggerating, uh, that they would not believe that these sorts of things could have happened. And so I went back to the idea of doing it as, as history, uh, but again, really trying to view it as a, a story. So that's kind of a long answer to your question, but that's kind of how I ended up here. Yeah, the, the gruesomeness of the famine. I mean, it's it's right in the first pages of the book uh, with this this guy who goes over there to kind of see if the tales are true. Um, you know, it, it, talk about this opening scene and and how how the the gruesome the, the gruesomeness of the famine, you know, influenced the people who got involved in this famine relief. I start the book with a photograph of uh, one of the young Americans who went over. He was a high school history teacher named Henry Wolfe, lived in Ohio, and he was bored out of his mind. Uh, a lot of these were young American men who had served in World War I and went back home to the U.S. and found the, the, the quiet life, something they couldn't sort of come to terms with, and they wanted another sort of adventure, and, and they signed up to do famine relief. Uh, many of them, it became a lot more adventure than they had originally kind of hoped for. But Wolf was one of these people who became fascinated by the stories of cannibalism, um, and he kind of sought out evidence and proof um, of it. And I stumbled upon this photograph in the rare book room uh, at Columbia University Library, and this photograph of, of Wolf with these Soviet officials with uh, what are, you know, basically skulls and other body parts displayed as proof of, of the cannibalism kind of caught me up. And, and what drew me to use it as the way 
to enter the book is not just the, the arrestingness of this image, how it grabs your attention, but there's the initials ARA stamped on a box upon which these body parts are laid out. So it gave me this entry into Americans in Russia, cannibalism, and it sort of offered a way in. And the truly grisly horror of the story was something that I struggled with. I didn't want to give way to sort of uh, famine porn or or something like that to sensationalize it. Yet at the at the... At the same time, I wanted to be really clear about just how brutal and horrific and awful um, these two, three years in Russia were. And so for me, it was a tough balance uh, between really bringing people up and making them take note of, of just how horrible and widespread the suffering was and the extremes that, that people were pushed to without in any way sort of crossing some sort of line. The uh, Hoover Institution at Stanford has, uh, you know, the bulk of the archive of the American Relief Administration, and they have literally hundreds and hundreds of photographs. Um, and I went through all of those. And there were many, many photographs that the minute I saw them, I said, I cannot put this in the book. It's, it crosses a line. You feel like you're in some ways um, robbing the dignity of some of these, these uh, poor people in the, you know, throes of death or... or shortly after. And so I just avoided that. But I wanted to really get Americans especially to wake up and take note of just how bad it is. You know, we hear stories about the Dust Bowl and the Depression. And and this is on a scale that is, you know, way beyond that sort of thing. Well, I, I certainly appreciate you giving sensitivity to that because, you know, as as someone who who studies Russia too, it's so easy to slip into the pornography of violence and destitution, uh, and and it really kind of color that country through its tragedies. Um, you know, it, but it's interesting though that this this was an incredibly horrific famine, and it's a famine that comes, you know, at the tail end of a really turbulent and violent and dislocative period of Russian history. Yet you point out, and and this is really seen also by the the scholarly record of of the famine and the famine relief, is that this the story of the American Relief Administration is mostly forgotten. It's it was forgotten quickly on the on the Soviet side, and it's been forgotten on the American side. Why do you think? That that's the case. Yeah, I think. Well, you you know, you mentioned first it was forgotten on the Soviet side, and that was consciously done. I mean, there was an outpouring of gratitude towards uh, America, Americans, and the ARA at the end of the mission in the uh, middle of the summer of 1923, when the U.S. packed up and went home. And, uh, you know, banquets were held and uh, plaques were presented saying that the Soviets would never forget this grand gesture of, of generosity from the Americans. Um, but, you know, as soon as, as soon as the U.S. was gone, they tried to wipe out any traces of it. And I think that's pretty understandable. This was a very bitter pill for the new Soviet government to swallow, to recognize the need for this help. And they did not want, obviously, to be reminded of it. It's not just, I think, the Soviets who react in such a way. I think this is something deeper ingrained in, in, in sort of human character. I think um, people who, who need to draw on the largesse and charity of others 
there is some way it degrades, it can feel degrading. And this is regardless of context or, or historical moment. So I think that's understandable. As far as the U.S. aspect, I think that's chiefly, uh, you know, a result of two things. First of all, Hoover, who obviously spearheaded the, the mission, the operation to Russia, was the, the head, the so-called chief of the American Relief Administration. His reputation was utterly destroyed during his presidency during the Depression. And for a long time after, no one wanted to even imagine anything good could have been done by this man who was hamstrung um, and seen as ineffectual in dealing with the Depression. So that's one of the main things. I think the other thing is, is as the Cold War deepens, um, especially post-World War II, I think there was this uh, larger sense that Americans didn't really want to hear about stories when we as a country had been able to overcome our political differences with the Soviet Union and to work with them to find common cause, um, recognize our shared humanity. I think that was something that during much of the years of the Cold War, uh, Americans didn't really want to be reminded of. And so I think these are sort of the, the main reasons that led it to be um, what I would call a forgotten story. Of course, you know, it wasn't totally forgotten. You know, some historians knew about it and some books have been written about it. I would not claim that I'm the first one to tackle the subject. There was, there's been at least three books in English on it, one by Harold Fisher, who had been part of the operation, who wrote a sort of official history of, of the relief effort and came out in the 1920s. And then there was a, a scholar at Rutgers named Benjamin Weissman, who wrote a, a fairly short but very insightful book about the relief mission um, that came out, I believe, in the 1970s or early 80s. And then there's a historian scholar at Stanford, uh, Bertrand Patnaud, who wrote sort of the, um, you know, soup to nuts, uh, quintessential book about the relief effort. It's a massive work of, uh, I think it's over 700 pages, um, where he goes into great detail on, on everything that was done. So there's a lot of scholarship that was done before I came along. What I was hoping to do with my book um, was to... to to boil it down and tell it in a way that would be immediate, direct, understandable, relatable for people who don't have a PhD in, in Slavic studies or something, something uh, along those lines. That's kind of what I, I tried to do. And I was also able to get some new information out of Russian archives, which even, uh, you know, Patton out really wasn't able to do. Um, I got some really interesting information that dealt with some of the things that the, uh, the Cheka, the secret police were doing. Uh, in terms of their relations with the American officials who were there carrying out the relief effort. So that's kind of what I tried to do with my book. Let's talk about the, this famine and, and the, co the wider context and causes for it, because like I said, it, it does come uh, in the, the kind of the, the tail end of uh, years of war, re revolution, the refugeedom, violence, epidemic, uh, so what, what talk more about this context and what, what were some of the chief causes of the 1921 famine? Yeah, well, it's, it was kind of a perfect storm that had been building for, for years, as you kind of, uh, referred to. Um, it's interesting. I noticed that, uh, you know, the book got a, a very positive review in the wall street journal and I was reading some of the reader's comments and, uh, I think we know generally which political direction the, the journal skews uh, and the readers were all, you know, pointing out, see, this is proof of the evil of communism. Uh, 
this is what happens when socialism gets hold, et cetera, et cetera. And that is not the message I really try to convey uh, ultimately with the book. I, I think to really understand the causes, you, you can't start with, you know, the Bolshevik seizure of power in the fall of, of 1917 that you really... This is something that began, had its roots uh, with the outbreak of World War I uh, in the summer of 1914, when you've got millions of, of, of Russian peasants leaving the land and going off to fight, uh, robbing the land of much of the manpower that was needed for agriculture. Um, the amount of, of arable land that is you know, being used to grow shrinks and shrinks, so less and less is being produced. And then you get the two revolutions of 1917, um, and especially the Bolshevik seizure of power, and then, you know, they're closing down of the Constituent Assembly and basically demanding a monopoly of, of political control. And then this leads to the just utterly devastating apocalyptic years of the Civil War with all sorts of armies, you know, crisscrossing back and forth over, over Russia that makes it almost impossible for uh, Russian peasants to continue on, continue on their agricultural work. And, and basically, it's the ultimate collapse of, of the agricultural system in which people are now basically just growing enough to feed themselves and their families and not growing enough to sell and transport to the cities. The cities start to starve. Uh, the armies lack food, and so there's a sort of war on the villages to squeeze as much grain out of them as possible. And here, yes, definitely the uh, requisitioning brigades and armies that were sent out from the cities uh, by by the Soviets were were extremely detrimental to the situation and helped to push it sort of over the edge to the point where something like 30 plus million people were, were facing starvation by the summer of 1921. It really is a it really is a factor of, of all of those things and, and the green wish green requisitioning of of you know all sides, but the, the Bolsheviks were incredibly forceful. But also, you know, the fact that the Civil War itself, you know, the fronts were constantly changing. You know, one week it could be the Bolsheviks in control of a region, the next week it could be the whites or somebody else or nobody. Uh, so it, the the famine really does come in this co- this perfect storm, as as you say. Um, you know, I'm really curious about Her- Herbert Hoover and what drew him into this, because as you said, you know, his reputation as president is is mostly discredited because of his inactions or his inability to take aggressive action on the onset of the Great Depression in the United States. But here it's interesting because here he actually you know, gets highly really involved, really hands on in providing relief, you know, first in in Belgium and then in this in the early Soviet Union. So uh, talk about him and and what drew him to to engage in this famine relief. Yeah, Hoover's an interesting character. Um, You know, when I I did not know all that much about his uh, biography before I started this, probably like a lot of people had a sort of a general understanding of who he was and and what he had done. Um, You know, he was was born into sort of, you know, a working class agricultural family in Iowa in the 1870s and was orphaned as a a young boy and sent off to live with his, his uncle in Oregon. Um, and then made his way to uh, to Stanford University. He was in the inaugural class there. He was apparently not a, a stellar student. He didn't, you know, wow his professors. 
And then he went off into the mining business, uh, was sent to Australia, and then made his way to China, and fairly quickly on proved himself to be an incredibly able administrator, hardworking, uh, insightful, had a, had, a, had a certain keen business sense as well. And he rose up the ranks of the international mining uh, world uh, in the latter years of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, and eventually went on to found his own international mining operation that spanned the globe and had interests um, sort of all over the world. He was uh, able to sort of make money in mining operations where others had failed before him. And by the beginning of World War One. He was living in, in London with his family. He had grown incredibly wealthy. Um, he had sort of reached the, the top of his profession. And I think on a certain level, he had grown a bit uh, maybe bored with the whole thing. And with the outbreak of World War I uh, and the German invasion into Belgium, uh, there was a threat of mass starvation there in Belgium. And he got involved with trying to bring relief to the Belgian people during the First World War. And he proved to be very successful at it and was able to convince both uh, you know, England and France as well as Germany to allow him to bring this relief uh, into the country. And he really did help save millions of lives in what was a, a truly catastrophic situation. He was then later brought back to the United States and put in charge of the overall food system in America when the United States went off to war. And he created this American Relief Administration that at the end of the war helped to bring relief uh, efforts throughout uh, Europe. And this organization that he then created was later used then to do this massive relief effort in Russia. Um, and he really was, uh, without a doubt, one of the great humanitarians of the 20th century. I mean, he really was responsible for saving the lives of probably tens of millions of people. Um, that said, I was very cognizant um, when taking on this book of not trying to write a hagiography, of, of trying to see Hoover uh, as a fully realized and rounded individual. Um, he was a man of his time. He was a man of his class, of his race. He was a very much a product of America of the late 19th, early 20th centuries. And I later found, uh, as I dug more and more into his biography, that you know there were aspects that were less uh, endearing, shall we say, for lack of a better word. Uh, when he was uh, running for president in 1927, there was the horrible flooding in the lower stretches of the Mississippi River, and he was put in charge of relief efforts down there, um, time when he became known as the, the quote-unquote master of emergencies. And he did do a lot to help the people in, down in the South in the United States, but chiefly just white Americans, uh, poor black Americans were basically forced to help rebuild white property, were not given aid, were actually enclosed in encampments that uh, was, were actually referred to as concentration camps. Uh, and denied, you know, the relief that was going to white farmers and and property owners, uh, something that, that Hoover had endorsed. Um, and then later when he was president, while he did not spearhead this operation, he was willing to let it happen, uh, became known as the Mexican repatriation when something around the number of a million 
um, Mexicans and Americans, American citizens of Mexican heritage were forcibly pushed south of the border in this sad incident in American history when there was this thinking that, well, if we get rid of these people, there'll be more jobs for unemployed, quote unquote, real Americans. And it's interesting, Sean, I, I made sure to put those bits of his biography in the book, again, to try to show that history is complex. There aren't white knights, you know, out there and saviors and that kind of thing that everybody is complicated and everybody probably has their aspects that are, that are less beneficial. Um, and when I was working on the book, I was in touch with uh, archivists and librarians at the Hoover Presidential Library in Iowa. They were very helpful, very supportive of my work, and I'm very grateful to them. And they were very much excited to have me come out and give a talk once my book was published. Well, I sent them a copy of the book once it was out, and I never even heard that they had received it. And I tried to reach out to them, and I've never heard back from them. And I... I keep wondering, uh-oh, what happened? And the only thing I can think of is that they, they saw those parts of whoever's story that I included in the book and maybe that soured them uh, on, on my work. But I think it's important that you really address all sides of, all sides of the history. So, I mean, this, of course, brings up the other kind of strange you know, contradiction here, given, given his politics, given the way, you know, some of these things you just pointed out is, you know, when, and from 1917 into the early twenties, there's a, there's a red scare here in the United States. The, the newspapers are full of, you know, fear of, you know, Bolshevism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the, the, the FBI, you know, the Bureau of Investigation is is doing surveillance of radicals and seeing a Bolshevik hand behind everything. But here is this this guy who who goes and helps this early Soviet government survive. So what drew him to the Soviet Union? I think, you know, crucial to understanding Hoover's humanitarianism is his Quaker faith. Um, this is something that was instilled in him from his earliest years, this notion that, you know, it isn't enough to think about yourself. You need to think about others. Uh, God has put you on this planet for a purpose. And, and it's not just to uh, focus on your own narrow individual interests. That if, if, you, can, if you can help those uh, less well off than yourself, that you have a moral obligation to do that. And I think it was very much a, a deep-seated sense of, of obligation to one's fellow man, to humanity in general that had led him to get involved with uh, bringing relief into Belgium, to helping to set up and start the American Relief Administration at the end of World War One, And that's sort of an interesting side note that I talk about. He was at the Versailles Peace Talks um, and got to know John Maynard Keynes. And Keynes was, was utterly blown away by Hoover and found him in the smartest of all the people at the Versailles Peace Talks because he was one of the few that was saying, look, we cannot put our knee to the neck of Germany and Austria. We need to bring them back into the fold. We can't go too hard on them. You know, there's blame to go all around for World War One's outbreak and what have you. Um, and he was one of the few voices speaking out against these harsh conditions that were imposed on Germany. And in fact, when he then started to do relief efforts uh, through the ARA throughout Europe, um, 
the U.S. government put a constraint on him saying no aid should go to Austria or to Germany. And he was dead set against that. And to his credit, he found a way to basically money launder or food launder, if you will, uh, what he had to work with and found ways to sneak it into Germany and into and into Austria. And this is, again, what, what led him, I think, to respond to the horrible situation in Russia. He, he saw Maxim Gorky's appeal to the world that was penned in the summer of 1921 and published in newspapers around the globe. He read that and he immediately said, we can do something to help and we have an obligation to help. Um, I think one of the things that made it possible in that environment of anti-Bolshevism and Red Scare was he had a reputation as being staunchly anti-Bolshevik. Um, and in a way, this was a sort of a vaccine that allowed him to do what he wanted to do uh, and shielded him from the political right who was going to say, well, you're just a, you know, you're a, you're a, you're a Bolshe, you're a communist and you want to, you know, save this political experiment. Everyone knew that, uh, that Hoover was uh, very much against Lenin's government, but that he made a distinction between the government and the people. And he was there not to help the government, but he was there to help the people. And he had to fight back against a lot of the Republican right at the time who were dead set against going over and uh, offering aid to what they saw as, you know, a, a communist government and a threat to the United States and, and our system. In some ways, I think it's sort of like the way Reagan was able to engage with, with Gorbachev. No one was going to accuse Reagan of being soft on communism, which gave him a certain freedom of movement that other politicians might not have had. But I would point out it wasn't just it wasn't just the right that attacked Hoover at the time. It was also there were voices on the left as well that said, well, you know, the way that we help the people of Soviet Russia is by political recognition, establishing trade, and that this is the way that we help them. It isn't just going over and dropping food and then leaving. Um, so there were voices against the operation, both on the left and the right, chiefly from the right. Um, but to his credit, Hoover was one of these people who said, look, it's the right thing to do for moral grounds. Uh, we can easily do it. We spend all this money every year on tobacco, alcohol, uh, clothes, fashion, what have you. We can easily afford to go over and offer this help to starving people. And what about from the Soviet side? You said, you know, Gorky pens this appeal. Um, what was the Soviet reaction to allowing the Americans to and Hoover to do this aid relief? Well, this was a subject that sort of drove a wedge almost like right down the middle of the Soviet leadership. Um, obviously, you know, the revolution had been made to overthrow global capitalism, to do away with the old order, to create a new uh, society along socialist communist lines. And so the thought that years into the revolution, when they had struggled so hard to, you know, seize control of the country to do, you know, to defeat their enemies, foreign and domestic class enemies, what have you, the idea that they were going to allow in, um, one of the world's leading capitalists, Herbert Hoover, uh, and his team, and let them roam the country and do as they will, completely divided the leadership. And there were those 
who were dead set against it. Um, but it was basically Lenin who carried the day. Lenin was very suspicious about letting the Americans in, but he was also always the realist politically about what was necessary. And I think he was one of those who saw that if we don't get this help, the whole thing could go down the drain. It was things were that tenuous by the spring of 1921 that, you know, Lenin, obviously, you've got the revolt in Kronstadt, you've got workers rioting and striking in Petrograd and Moscow, you have peasant armies. Uh, waging war against the Red Forces throughout much of the Russian territory, uh, peasant forces that Lenin himself says are more dangerous than the Denikins uh, and Vrangels and what have you. Um, and so he says, we need to do this if we're going to save our, our, our fledgling government. But there was a general sense that Hoover was a Trojan horse, that if they were going to let this gift into the country, they were going to have to keep very, very close tabs on it and make sure that they knew exactly what it was up to at every moment. Uh, so talk about uh, what the American Relief Administration or the ARA did in Russia and, and how the, the, the Soviet government kind of kept tabs on them. Well, it really was the largest humanitarian operation in history up to that point. Um, you know, nothing had ever been attempted on a scale uh, like the, the Russian job. Uh, which is the title of the book and also was the, a, a term that was often used by the men involved in, in the relief effort. Uh, it's interesting. It, it wasn't necessarily by today's standards, maybe enormous in terms of manpower, in terms of the dollars. There was a $20 million appropriation from Congress that was added to existing funds within the ARA coffers, bringing the overall, you know, money spent to maybe around, uh, you know, maybe 80 million. It's not always clear how they, you know, you count this. And at the time, no more than something like two or 300 men were ever in country at once, but it covered an enormous territory. It's, I had to check this figure several times because I kept thinking I was doing the math wrong, but they operated in the territory over a million square miles. It's truly enormous, the amount of territory that they covered. Um, you know, when they went over, famine was uh, was widespread, something like 30 plus million people facing starvation. At the height of the operation, the ARA was feeding close to 11 million people a day. But they very quickly realized that food alone wouldn't do the job. And that, you know, as you mentioned earlier, you know, disease and epidemics were rampant. So they, they very much got involved in medical relief. They uh, funded hospitals, dental clinics throughout the country. They brought in a huge amount of uh, medical supplies. They vaccinated over 8 million people against a host of diseases. Um, they had projects to try to clean up the water supply in various cities. They brought over huge amounts of um, clothing and shoes. And they also had a separate program to bring the latest uh, scholarly and academic literature, books and journals and, and what have you to Russia's scholars who had been cut off from the work that was being done by their peers in the West for several years during the, um, the Civil War. So it was a massive undertaking. 
Um, but it could never have been done without the support of, of the Russian people. As I said, there was only ever a few hundred Americans in country doing the work. So they had to put together a huge army of Russian employees. Eventually around 125,000 Russians worked for the ARA and they were the ones that really did all the heavy lifting. They were the ones that acted as couriers that went out into the deep countryside to set up uh, the food kitchens and to figure out how the food was going to get to these remote places. And they were like really sort of the unsung heroes of the operation, especially these couriers whose job it was to bring, you know, food and supplies uh, across vast distances, either, you know, on a, on a sledge in the winter, pulled by horses or oxen or camels in some instances, or across these horribly broken, rundown railway systems uh, that had been literally destroyed as a result of the Civil War and that were overridden with um, refugees and uh, disease. Uh, you know, typhus was terrible. Uh, most of the couriers who did these long runs would end up eventually getting sick with typhus or some sort of disease, end up in a hospital. And they were really the ones that made it happen. And what's incredible about it, too, is these people who had nothing were given a bit of food and money by the ARA to do the work, were incredibly honest, forthright. Almost nothing went missing. Almost nothing was stolen by these people. Um, and they are the ones that really sort of helped to make it happen. And all of this was being done as the Soviet government kept a very close watch um, on the Americans, as well as the Russians who worked alongside the Americans. There was a fear that the Americans would try to set up sort of counter-revolutionary cells everywhere. And so the Cheka was, was diligent in monitoring them. They were often arresting the Russians who worked alongside the Americans suspected that they were spies. Of course, the Americans had to hire people who had the language skills, who knew English, um, who were educated to work in offices and things like that. These were often typically people from the middle or upper classes who were already uh, deemed suspicious as class enemies of the new Soviet government. Um, so there was that element. But what's interesting that I found out uh, getting into it was, on one hand, the Cheka was trying to stymie the ARA's operations uh, and impede their work. But at the same time, the Cheka made it possible for the ARA to do their work because the country was so broke down. There were so many difficulties in moving food and supplies uh, over the rail network that oftentimes the only way the work could be carried out was for the ARA to go to Dzerzhinsky, even that high up the ladder, or someone like him, Peters, or one of these other top Cheka officials and say, look, we need a train to bring supplies from Moscow to Kazan or Samara, and we can't get the railway workers to cooperate. Well, that's when the Cheka would get involved and literally would show up at the railway stations and basically say, you need a train here in under 24 hours to carry this uh, shipment of supplies off to the provinces. And if you don't do that, it will be your head. And sometimes it took measures like that for the ARA to do their job. And so people like uh, Haskell, who was, the, who was the in-country head of the ARA, said, you know, I have nothing but good things to say about the Cheka and Zerzhinsky, 
without him, we never could have done our work. Uh, you know, it, it, your story and this story is, is such a dramatic story and involves so many, um, you know, people. And, and as you point out, you know, amazing people on the ground doing this work. What are some of the and then, of course, witnessing the the famine and witnessing its devastation? Uh, what are some of the, the key moments or stories that stand out to you in, in this story? Oh, that's that's a that's a good question. You know, it's funny. I I worked for the uh, U.S. State Department um, in the Soviet Union in the 1980s uh, for uh, a branch of the State Department, the USIA, on a cultural exchange exhibition that traveled around the Soviet Union. And I worked on this uh, exhibit called Informatica v Zizni Sasha. Information USA was called. It was about the New World of American Technology. And I worked in Tbilisi, I worked in Tashkent, I worked in Irkutsk, and it was still very much, you know, the Cold War and tensions. And we were watched by KGB. Uh, I became friends with uh, people in all those cities, and my, my local friends were questioned by the, 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 organi, the, the organs of the Secret Services and what have you. Um, but I still made these am amazing connections with people that uh, all these years later I'm still in touch with. And in a way, I could kind of then relate to some of these ARA workers who were there and the bonds that they made with with Russian people. And some of those stories really kind of resonated uh, with me um, that despite uh, and this maybe sounds hokey and cliche, but I really believe this, that, the, you know, despite these differences in upbringing and nationality and political system that people ultimately are people and the way that they found to connect with each other kind of resonated. There was like this one episode where the Americans had come to Kazan um, and set up their operation and they had hired local Russians to help in the offices and what have you. And, and they were paid for their work typically in food, in American food and flour and corn grits and things like that. And, and, one night, uh, while the Americans were out um, uh, on Christmas Eve, some of the Russian women who worked in the U.S. offices had had snuck into the uh, living quarters of the Americans and brought in a Christmas tree, and they decorated it with lights, and they had um, bought little presents for the Americans and wrapped them up, and they had even used some of the flour that they had received as part of their ARA rations to bake a Christmas cake. And they decorated the, the living quarters of the Americans very quietly, uh, stealth mode and light, uh, lit the tree and everything. And so the Americans came back from work and found this and were so touched and moved by it um, that they were like saying, this is the best Christmas they'd ever had, uh, something that they would never forget. And it's like episodes like that, that, um, I, I don't know. I think those are really important moments to reflect on and to write about and to remember, given that we're often being, you know, <laughs> reminded of the times of war and rioting and violence and what have you. And there are moments like that throughout the book where these points of human contact that, that, um, bridge the divisions between uh, the countries and, and the people of these places. Those for me were really kind of powerful and elements that I tried to, to bring in to, to the book, because I think they are, um, well, they're important reminders. 
Yeah, this 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 goes to another question I have in in exactly this where, you know, we and and not just in your story, but I mean, in your personal story as well, but also you can find uh, a lot of similar stories with contacts between Americans and Russians, whether it's the Soviet Union or not. Um, and and during times when relation, official relations between both countries are really at a horrible place. So where do you put this story of the American Relief uh, Administration within the larger, you know, framework of U.S.-Russian relations? Like what what's important about it? Well, I think – you know, I think we get so much about the Cold War. Uh, we get so much about the tensions between the United States and Russia. Obviously, we've gotten plenty of that since the 2016 election. Um, we have stacks and stacks of books, you know, increasingly on, you know, Putin and Putin regime and, and what have you. And I think it's really important to, to be reminded of these moments of cooperation, um, whether it is this particular story, whether it's maybe Lend Lease, uh, which is you know a similar moment where we where we uh, worked together, where it was moments of cooperation during the 1990s, or you could go back even to the 1890s, 1891, when there was again a a, a horrible famine. Uh, in Tsarist Russia, and again, America sent off aid and supplies at the time. And in fact, American aid to Russia was commemorated in two amazing paintings by the noted Armenian-Russian uh, artist Ivozovsky. Um, and I think it's important that we recall these moments when actually we do work together, we do cooperate, um, that the story of our two countries is just not one that can be reduced to hostility and and suspicion, um, and so that's why, for me, this story is important and 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 should be remembered. That you know, even when governments claim to be uh, devout enemies of each other, if 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 people want to, you still can find a way to tackle common problems and 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 find ways to cooperate. And finally, did a, you know, your, your book is titled The Russian Job, The Forgotten Story of How America Saved the Soviet Union from Ruin. So America saved the Soviet Union from ruin. Um, did America save the Soviet Union from ruin in your, in your view after doing this book? Uh, you know, a lot of people push back on my subtitle. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we understand it's, it's partially to catch attention, so it's okay. <laughs> but yeah. You know, I, I look. It's funny because the, my British publisher, Picador, uh, they decided they were not going to go with that subtitle. So in 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 the UK, the book is the Russian Dob, the forgotten story of how America saved the Soviet Union from famine. Um, they 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 didn't want me to go that far. I I would argue it did, um, and I can't you know prove this to everyone's satisfaction, but the fact of the matter is. Uh, in my estimation, the aid that the Americans brought in, which was enormous in scale, basically brought the country up off of the floor. It it fed, you know, over ten million people. It 
provided relief from epidemic and and disease that was rampant throughout the country it was part of the breathing room that was necessary to save the soviet regime in 1921 that was the logic behind the new economic policy and the shift in some of the government's um political tools that was using you know the you know two steps back etc cetera, etc cetera, of of lenin that it seems to me that that by bringing this aid and relief into the country, it allowed Lenin and his government to feed the cities, which it wasn't able to do before. And it was losing control of the cities and the working population, which had been sinking anyway. And it allowed them to help placate uh, the military, which was in many ways turning against the Soviet uh, government not just with Kronstadt, but with mass desertions among the Red Army troops, that uh, reports of which were coming in throughout the country. So I, I think you can make an argument that it really did help save, uh, save the Soviet Union from, from collapse. Um, I can't prove that 100%. There will be many who will argue that, uh, that I'm exaggerating here. Um, and then there's people on the other side. Again, you know, I've had other people say to me, well, yes, it did save the Soviet Union, and that was a huge mistake. That, in fact, uh, which uh, a logic that I find abhorrent. But we should have let the country, you know, collapse. We should have let more people die. We should have let the Soviet system implode. And that by saving the Soviet Union in 1921, 1923, what Hoover did was set up the survival of the Soviet system which then leads to Stalin's tear, the gulags, uh, Stalin's famine of the early 1930s with, you know, again, four, five, six million people dying of, of starvation, the Cold War, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that, that in fact, the wise thing would have been to have, have let all these people die, which to me is repugnant. I just find that line of thinking utterly it's also just bad. it's also bad history it's just really bad history um you know i actually i actually have one more question um you know during during this period you also have the soviet government uh engaging in anti-famine relief uh d- relief against epidemic you know you have propaganda you know i'm reminded of these propaganda posters about famine um what what did this what was the soviet government doing in terms of the famine during this period right well so the the government did have its own programs but uh, i think it's hard to to wrap our minds around just what few resources the soviet government had to work with it 1921 they really they didn't have a lot of tools at their disposal so one of the things that the ARA insisted on was that if we're going to bring over grain um, that can be milled and made into you know flour and bread, we want to be sure that this grain is not basically used as seed to uh, worry about the next harvest, that we need to feed people now. Um, and so one of the conditions for the, the ARA's operations was you need to go on to the world's markets and buy seed grain. Uh, 
you need to use some of your gold reserves, which they had basically just taken from the old Tsarist gold reserves, and go on to the open market and buy seed grain so that we will provide food for right now, and you will then be helping to provide the seed grain for the future harvests. So this was sort of one of the main things that the, that the Soviet government uh, did to help uh, get through the famine. And they also provided the, much of the, obviously the logistical support. Um, so they were, you know, as bad as the transportation system was, all of the movement of American supplies was made possible, storage and movement and distribution um, free of charge by the Soviet by the Soviet government, and I should also add that this was an international effort. You know, Nansen Fridtjof Nansen was brought in to try to help, um, and uh, you know the International Red Cross, uh, the Pope, and other agencies did bring aid. But something like ninety percent of all the aid that that made its way to Russia came through the ARA. But it was uh, an international operation, and not solely. Um, solely an American operation. Douglas Smith is an award-winning historian and translator and the author of numerous books, including Rasputin, Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs, and Former People, The Final Days of the Russian Aristocracy. His most recent book is The Russia Job, The Forgotten Story of How America Saved the Soviet Union from Ruin, published by Farrar, Strauss, and Garou. Here's Douglas Smith. That was Douglas Smith. Douglas Smith is an award-winning historian and translator, and author of numerous books, including Rasputin, Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs, and Former People, The Final Days of the Russian Aristocracy. His most recent book is The Russia Job, the Forgotten Story of How America Saved the Soviet Union from Ruin, published by Farrar, Strauss, and Guru. I'm your host, Sean Gillery, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, I want to thank all my patrons for your continued support. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Down on a brand new day, no more.